We are in a new year, a new series called Set Apart. We're going to be going through the letter of First Peter during this month. And I'm excited because thanks to 10 years of dissertation writing, Peter's become kind of my guy. Taking him back from the Catholics. I'm just kidding. Um, so yeah, so we're going to go into a series on, on First Peter this morning. And to get us thinking about where, where the text will take us this morning, um, <clears throat> there's a, a book called Atomic Habits. I've probably talked about it before. I read it a couple years ago. And uh, it really had an impact on my approach to work and things like that because it's about habit forming and keeping and things like that. But anyway, I signed up for the author, James Clear. He's got an email newsletter called the 321 uh, email, and he basically gives like three quotes, two ideas, and you get the three, two, and then there's one question at the end. And So it comes out in the middle of the week every week, and... <clears throat> The one that he sent, his, his third quote, they're quotes from himself. I don't know how I feel about that, but I'm just kidding. But it's a good one. So I just wanted to share the quote that he, that he sent in, in his email newsletter. He said, Don't worry about being the most interesting person in the room. Just try to be the most interested person in the room. The interested person asks about others and leaves a good impression because people like talking about themselves. The interested person is genuinely curious about someone's craft and learns a lot about how things work. The interested person engages with more people and because opportunities come through people is more likely to catch a lucky break. In general, the interested person learns more and tends to be well-liked and in the long run, it's hard to keep down someone who is well-learned and well-liked. And I share this quote with you this morning because <clears throat> I've been thinking, and this is primarily because my wife gave me a book uh, by Dave Grohl called The Storyteller for Christmas. If you don't know who Dave Grohl is, Dave Grohl is the lead singer, founder, guitar player, multi-instrumentalist from the band The Foo Fighters. He was also the drummer for the Seattle band Nirvana. They had a heyday in the 90s. I'm a 90s rock guy, sorry. Just what I grew up on. <clears throat> and I've been reading his book, and one of the things that stands out to me about people like Dave Grohl is that <clears throat> uh, he just, he, he fell in love with his craft, and he just worked every day, hours and hours, even before he had the tools, even before he had a drum kit, uh, he set up pillows on his bed in his room as a kid and would listen to his favorite music and learn drum parts on pillows as if they were the toms and snare and cymbals. And he would do this to get really good at his craft. And if you, whether you like his music or not, he, he's really good at what he does. And I, I was thinking about that and then... It took me back to one of my last classes in college when I was a senior. I had Professor Michael Shannon at Cincinnati Christian University, and he had taught a preaching class. 
And on the last day of class, although this was the norm for him, he would oftentimes get in a, in a chair. Again, not a rocking chair. He was smarter than me. Uh, but he would get in a chair, and he'd just kind of recline back every now and then to teach. But on the last day, he sat in the chair, and he sat back, and he said, hey, you know, as the last day of class, let's do a little Q&A. What questions do you have of me as a professor so I can give you any kind of parting advice or whatever? And I don't remember which of my fellow students asked this, but somebody said, what is the number one advice that you would give us as we go out into ministry and as we go out into our lives? And the thing that he said was, pick one thing that you can put your hard work into doing and get really, really, really good at it. And you'll be all right. Which was super practical advice. You know, I was expecting something more spiritual or whatever. But as I have found, I took that and I ran with it in in my own ways. And all these things, as you're wondering, well, where's, where's this going with 1 Peter here? 1 Peter is an interesting letter. It's, it's written by the Apostle Peter. There's, in, in Bible geek world, there's some debate about that. But even those that debate against Peter writing it firmly believe that Peter's own disciples wrote it in his honor. And so whether you think Peter wrote it or not, the message ends up being the same because it's coming from him. I'm a personal of the personal opinion that Peter wrote it. I mean, he signed it at the beginning. Anyway, that's beside the point. Um, But Peter basically, if you know his story, he is one of the first disciples, uh, in fact, the first disciple called by Jesus. Uh, He and uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, were fishermen, and Jesus called them to leave their nets behind and follow after him to be his disciples. And they did it. And Jesus ends up uh, accumulating uh, many other disciples, but 12 of them he names apostles. They were his inner circle. Uh, they, got to, they got to see and hear more from Jesus than the, the more general onlooker that caught on to what he was doing in his mission uh, to bring about the, the kingdom of God uh, in the world. And so Peter... Uh, is not only on the inner 12, but we find out from uh, the Gospels that Peter is also on an even inner inner. He's part of the three because he and James and John oftentimes get pulled further into Jesus' world and they get to see and hear even more extra special stuff. Like when Jesus raises a young girl from the dead or when he is transfigured uh, and, and, and God and his voice the father says, this is my son, listen to him. Even though Peter has trouble listening before speaking often in the Gospels. So that's the funny thing about Peter, too, is as you read the Gospel stories about him, he's often the spokesperson for the twelve. When Jesus asks questions, he steps up to the mic and gives the answer. And sometimes Peter's dead wrong. Like in the story of the Transfiguration, for instance, he comes up with this idea that they should make tents or tabernacles for, uh, for Moses and Elijah who appear with Jesus in the transfiguration scene. 
Um, and if you don't know what that means, it basically was the way of like, let's pay homage to these three guys, and, and you should only ever pay homage to God. So he basically has to be put in his place in that moment. But even when Peter gets the right answer, for instance, when Jesus says, who do the crowd say I am? And the, the disciples, they, they throw out these, you know, ah, some people think you're Elijah, some people think you're a prophet, and all this different stuff. And he turns the question, he says, who do you say I am? And it's Peter that steps up and says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And even when he answers the question right, we find out often that Peter's understanding and his ability to give the correct answer are not on the same page. Because after, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, that, uh, and it happens in chapter 16, that Peter answers the right question, Jesus goes on to tell them that he's going to be handed over to be crucified, and Peter rebukes him. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. Which is not something you want to hear if you're trying to be a good follower of Jesus. I'm just not something you want to hear from Jesus. Because Peter didn't get it. He didn't get what it meant that Jesus was the Christ, that he was coming to lay down his life. And that's really important, by the way, when you reflect on who Peter is. Because Peter, much like the other disciples, were excited. The Messiah found them, and they found the Messiah. And that meant that by virtue of being the disciple of the Messiah, that they would have special places when he came in his rule. They got to go from being nobody fishermen to somebody near the throne. Don't we all want to be somebody? Have you ever wanted to be somebody? You know, the reason I'm reading Dave Grohl's book right now is because when I was a a kid, I wanted to be a rock musician. In fact, I've probably told the story before that the reason I got my first guitar at Christmas, I'm pretty sure, is because my, my dad walked in on me playing both air guitar and air microphone with a hockey stick to my cranked up music in my room. And I got together with friends that wanted to make it in music because we grew up on 90s music and we heard the stories of these bands that somehow miraculously got signed to record deals and then they got really famous and it was real fun and everything like that. I didn't know Dave Grohl's story about how hard he worked. You see, the thing is, sometimes we get so sidetracked by wanting to be somebody or something to somebody that we forget to be. We forget to be. That's why that James Clear uh, or, uh, uh, quote stuck out to me. The idea of wanting to be the most interesting person in the room versus wanting to be the most interested. Because those are two entirely different things. And we live in a world right now where there's no shortage of influencers over the internet, which I have to tell you is one of my pet peeve words in my current, like, I don't know, what are you influencing? Anyway, that's beside the point. So Peter, he goes from wanting to be somebody, to be near the throne, to be in the special cohort of followers of the Messiah. He's so excited to be somebody. 
until he comes to grips with the fact that the Messiah he's chosen to follow, that chose him to follow him, is going to be arrested, tried in a sham trial, and crucified. And Peter, in his most brazen self, when, when Jesus tells them again that this is going to happen, you know what Peter says? He says, I will follow you to prison. I will follow you to death. And do you know what happens on the night that Jesus is arrested? Peter denies knowing him three times. And not just to anybody. Not to some big brooding Roman guard or, or the, the, the temple guards. No, 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 no. There's a slave girl at one point around the campfire that he's keeping warm at. Someone that in that world was very low on the ladder of social movement and mobility. And Peter can't even admit that he knows Jesus to her. He denies, as Jesus predicted, knowing the Son of God three times. And the rooster crows, and Peter weeps. And Jesus is buried. And the disciples that fled at his arrest come together and they go into hiding. They go into hiding. But Jesus is raised from the dead. An angel appears at his tomb, and the women uh, that followed Jesus, they, they went to the tomb to, to check on him, to, to finish the burial customs that they didn't get to finish because of when Jesus died and how swiftly he needed to be laid in the tomb because of the Sabbath. And so when they go back, they find the stone rolled away, the tomb empty, and an angel saying, why are you looking for him? Did you not pay attention when he was teaching? He's gone. And so uh, the angels are the first to share the gospel story that Jesus is raised from the dead, Uh, the women run to the disciples because they're told to go share it with them. And they tell them, and even though they don't believe the women at first, Jesus shows up in their hiding space and appears to them. And the Holy Spirit that he promised would come upon those disciples and every believer from that point forward comes on the day of Pentecost early in the book of Acts, chapter 2. And the Spirit dwells within them and emboldens them and enlivens them to the mission that Jesus called them to in the first place. And do you know who ends up being the leader of that early movement? I bet you're going to be shocked. It's Peter. He gets up and he preaches that famous sermon to the, the folks that are there and And they're folks from kind of all over the place, even from Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey, which is going to be important when we get into 1 Peter here. They hear his sermon on the day of Pentecost. And when you read about Peter in the book of Acts, and he kind of just isn't there past Acts 15, but the first half of the book, we find out that Peter's continually challenged, even in his Uh, post-resurrection, ascension, dwelling of the Holy Spirit self. He's challenged as a Jewish person to see beyond his own customs and his own people and to see that God has a movement to start with his people, but to go beyond it. 
And yet, in his being challenged, he follows through. He goes to the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, a Gentile family, and he converts them to the faith. And they become disciples of Jesus, indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter becomes part of the group of Jewish believers in Jesus, because all of Jesus' earliest followers were Jewish, that have to make a determination on how their mission is going to go beyond the borders of their Judaism in a way that keeps them honoring God the way they know how, but invites others that are outside of that group on the inside. And so Peter does that work and moves forward. And so when we get to the letter of James... These two verses aren't going to be on our screen today because we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. But I just want you to hear the first two verses of uh, Peter. Did I say James a second ago? Yeah, man, because I have him on the brain because he took over in Jerusalem after. Anyway, that's beside the point. I still have COVID brain fog. I'm not joking. Anyway, okay, 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 1 through 2 I just want you to hear this, and you can follow along if you've got your Bibles here, but it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's chosen strangers in the world of the diaspora who live in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father chose you because of what he knew beforehand. He chose you through the Holy Spirit's work of making you holy and because of the faithful obedience and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. May God's grace and peace be multiplied to you. <clears throat> now, in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, we're going to find out that Peter uses a, a uh, scribe or amanuensis, someone that actually knows how to write, because Peter probably couldn't read and write. Uh, he was a fisherman, and most people couldn't read and write back at this time. But he was able to dictate a letter to someone that could, and so there's a person named Silas or Silvanus, and we find out that Silvanus writes the letter on Peter's behalf, and they're writing from Babylon, which is code in the New Testament for Rome. So Peter's in Rome, and he's writing to these places in Asia Minor, again, modern-day Turkey. And if you're familiar with Acts chapter 2, and if you're not, you should go back and read it later, you should look at the places that Peter's writing to and the people groups that are there to hear his Pentecost sermon. They're the same places. It turns out that these places are probably places that Paul hadn't been at yet, which is important because if you know Paul, he's like one of the biggest Christian missionaries ever, and he wrote a bunch of our New Testament books or letters. It's very likely that these people came to faith upon hearing Peter's first sermon. And maybe Peter had more interaction beyond then, but we know that churches started and were influenced by Peter. And so from Rome, Peter's writing this letter to these Christians that are now uh, converts to the faith. They're now disciples of Jesus, but they're living in a largely Gentile area. And that becomes really, really important because the language that Peter uses in the two verses that we just read is language that usually gets used for the Jewish people at the time of Jesus. This is language that Peter himself would have adopted for himself. 
Because in the Jewish world, in 586 B.C., the people of Judah were exiled to Babylon. Hence, Babylon's the big bad of the Old Testament intertestamental period. And so using Babylon as code for Rome is important because all people would have understood what Peter was saying based off of their history here. So Peter's writing from the place of the modern big bad Rome using language that would have been familiar to himself and now applying it to disciples of Jesus that are living in these other places. He calls them strangers in the world of the diaspora or the dispersion. You see, once the people of Judah were exiled, they were dispersed. They were not living in their homeland. And so if you're a Christian, a disciple of Jesus that Peter's writing this letter to, you are a foreigner, an alien, a stranger in the land that you're in. Why? Not maybe because you're in a different homeland, but because you have a new home. You belong to a king and a kingdom and no longer the place that you are. And you are now called to be holy, to be different, to be set apart. And so Peter is writing this letter to Christians living in the wider Gentile world that are coming face to face with the reality that trying to live out their faith is difficult. And it's difficult because they're likely facing some form of persecution. Now, it's highly unlikely they're facing the super big bad persecution you might think of where they might be being executed, and more likely that it's smaller scale. Maybe they're running afoul in their jobs because people are mistreating them. Maybe they're being mistreated in their own homes. Maybe they are being put down economically. And this is problematic because if you have decided to embrace the gospel, you might have thought, much like Jesus' earliest disciples, much like Peter, that if I follow the Messiah, I'm going to have a special place. I'm going to have more than what I had, not less. I'm going to be in a good spot. No, you know what? I'm going to be somebody. And right now, the way I'm treated by the people around me, I feel like a nobody. This following Jesus business is hard. And so Peter writes this letter as an encouragement to those Christians in this area. But in order for this to be understood as an encouraging letter, you have to understand Peter's frame of mind that he wants them to adopt. And so, in order for us to get that, I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. This section occurs after he gives his thanksgiving, which is this wonderful theological view of how wonderful God is and how gracious he is in sending his son and how much the Holy Spirit is doing. I mean, the Trinity features big time here. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and all the work that they're doing, Peter gives thanks for that. 
And after giving thanks and reorienting the people to whom they belong to, he enters into the crux of the matter in verse 13. And I want you to follow with me here. Peter says, Therefore, once you have your minds ready for action and you are thinking clearly, place your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Don't be conformed to your former desires, those that shaped you when you were ignorant. But as obedient children, you must be holy in every aspect of your lives, just as the one who called you is holy. It is written, you will be holy because I am holy. Since you call upon a father who judges all people according to their actions without favoritism, you should conduct yourselves with reverence during the time of your dwelling in a strange land. Live in this way, knowing that you are not liberated by perishable things like silver or gold from the empty lifestyle you, you inherited from your ancestors. Instead, you were liberated by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a flawless, spotless lamb. Christ was chosen before the creation of the world, but was only revealed at the end of time. This was done for you, who through Christ are faithful to the God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So now your faith and hope should rest in God. As you set yourselves apart by your obedience to the truth, so that you might have genuine affection for your fellow believers, love each other deeply and earnestly. Do this because you have been given new birth, not from the type of seed that decays, but from seed that doesn't. This seed is God's life-giving and enduring word. Thus, all human life on the earth is like grass, and all human glory is like a flower in a field. The grass dries up, and its flower falls off, but the Lord's word endures forever. This is the word that was proclaimed to you as good news. See, Peter is dealing with a people group that are asking the question, what gives? What gives? I signed on to follow the Messiah. I signed on for a better life. I signed on to not have to deal with hardship. I signed on to make it ahead in life and not to fall behind. I signed on for the acclaim, not ridicule. What gives, Peter? I can almost imagine them hearing... These very people that, that might have been there on the day of Pentecost, or at least know somebody that was, that heard this sermon. And if you read Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, it says they were cut to the heart. They were moved by what he said, and they asked, what should we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, each one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they probably were like, yeah. And they, we know that they were like, yeah, because thousands on that day came to the Lord. And they probably went home and they shared with others the good news and converted others. And so they thought they were signing on for the good life. And they're now asking, what gives? Because this life that I'm living, it ain't all that good. So Peter does something unique here. He acknowledges their question. 
You might have heard it in the verses there, his acknowledgement. When he says things like, don't settle for things that are perishable, like silver and gold, which is what you used to go after in your previous life. Don't, don't hang on to perishable things that come and go in life, but hang on to the imperishable Word of God. He's calling them to reframe what the good life is. See, they weren't sold a fake bill of goods. But their understanding, much like Peter's understanding when he met Jesus for the first time, is a bit skewed. They thought things were going to get better from here on out. And they missed what living the good life really meant. Peter also answers that question too. He gives the refrain that Jesus taught that's taught in the Old Testament. Be holy for I am holy, which is what God says to the Israelites and Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. And Peter now, who heard Jesus and walked and talked with him, is now recounting for those that are disciples in Asia Minor at the time. Be holy. Be set apart. Be different. Be obedient. And obedience is a different thing than looking for the worldly ways of living the good life. Obedience doesn't always show the culmination of the work in the here and now. In fact, obedience, by the way, if you're a believer in Jesus and a believer in Scripture, isn't something that any of us are even good at doing on our own. That's why the Spirit is needed. Because we are, to use a theologically charged term, depraved because of our sin. We are apart from God because of our sin. And when we turn to God, He doesn't leave us to our own devices to try to will our way to goodness, but to embolden us and empower us by His Spirit to help us to do good. But that is still the call that he makes. It was the call that God had to Adam and Eve in the garden. It was the call to Noah before the flood. It was the call to Abraham when he called him to get up and go. It was the call to Moses. It was the call to the Israelites. It was the call to David. It was the call that Jesus made to his disciples. Be holy as I am holy. And everybody, including us, have not hit the mark of our own volition. And yet the call still stands, but the way to get there is made new, and it's made supercharged because God sent his son Jesus to take the place of our sin, to die, to be raised, to give us life. And he sent the Spirit to get us on our feet and get us moving but the call still stands to be set apart. The, the call still stands to be set apart. And that's why that quote in Michael Shannon's advice that I shared at the beginning stood out to me this week. As I was studying through this passage, I literally just kept having these moments come back to me where it was like, oh yeah, I get this. Because... 
The thing is, if you're worried about being the, the biggest influencer, having the biggest impact, being the most famous, being known for something, being somebody, but you stop worrying about being, you lose the plot altogether. And that's the plot that was lost by the people that Peter is writing to. Because they thought that by following Jesus, everything was going to magically get better right then and there. And they lost the fact that their call was not to be the best and have it all put together, but to be followers of Jesus in the small details and the grand details of life. And as we get further into this letter, we're going to see that Peter addresses all of the small details of life. He addresses the life that the disciples of Jesus in these areas are experiencing in their home, in their work relationships, in their economics. And he constantly calls them back, not to worry about their plight, but to worry about being set apart, being obedient. In doing that, whether they receive something good or whether they receive a lashing for it. That's something he actually talks about later on in the letter. But the call, the call is to be set apart. And I realized at one point that that advice that Michael Shannon gave me while he laid back in that chair not only served me well in my career aspiration, but even in my approach to my faith. You know, when I, when I was in college and then I went into seminary, I learned very quickly that I was really into studying the Bible and I wanted to keep studying it and I wanted to grow in my knowledge base and all these different things. But I hadn't completely comprehended my, my calling. And I once went and I attended a seminar that was about uh, what it was like to be a PhD student. And I went to the seminar that a panel of professors put on while I was in seminary. And I thought, oh, they're going to they're gonna tell all about how great it is and how easy it is. I don't know why I would have ever thought that they would have talked about how easy it was. I thought that they would really pump it up and make you excited about doing it. Well, it turned out that the lesson in that little seminar was titled, Why You Should Not or Never Be a PhD Student. And they spent 45 minutes straight telling you why going into a PhD program was one of the dumbest decisions you could ever make in your life. Which is funny because all the people telling us this had gone through it. They were talking about how bad the job market was going to be, how little it would help your economic situation, all these different things. But they saved the last five minutes of the seminar to tell you why, after hearing all that, maybe, just maybe, you should still do it. And my mentor, Tom Thatcher was the person that did this five minutes. 
And he said two things. He said, one, if you are doing it in order to grow in your own faith, in order to be built up in your faith, that can be a good reason to go through the rigor. And the second thing he said, and this is the one that stuck with me to this day, if you're going to do it so that you are better equipped to serve the church, and not so you can have PhD after your name and sit buried in books, but actually serve the church, that can be an okay reason to do it too. And right then and there, the kid that went into that seminar, the early 20-something that went into that seminar, thinking, I'm going to figure out how I can go be Dr. Tim, which would be dumb anyway, uh, I left that saying, oh, I know what my calling is. I don't want to go buried in an office with books in an ivory tower. I want to serve the church. And I want to be the best, best version of me to do it. And ever since that day, I studied and I studied, and eventually I got invited into an opportunity, and that person that said that five minutes ended up being my co-supervisor in my Ph.D. program. And I even thought very ignorantly that it would be really easy to be a minister and do a Ph.D. at the same time. It's not. It's one of the worst decisions I've ever made and best at the same time. But I've never lost sight of that sense of calling. That I want to be in order to give of myself to the calling God has put on my life. And really, ultimately, that's why I love Peter so much. Not just because I've spent a long time studying him, but because the guy that wanted to be somebody finally learned in all of his brashness, in all of his wrong answers, in all of his imperfections, he learned to be a true disciple of Jesus. And he learned that what counts is to be holy, to be set apart, and in that, to love God and to love each other in the church. And you know, if you do those things, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to be somebody. Quite frankly, I don't care about being anybody. Maybe, maybe one day I'll be a footnote of a footnote of a footnote because some poor soul will find my dissertation on a shelf in the Netherlands and find it useful. But quite frankly, I just want to be what God calls me to be. Regardless of what that ends up doing for me, we're looking like. And I believe that that's what God calls us as a church to be, to be set apart. And so as we go through First Peter this month, we're going to look at the ways that Peter addresses that in our day-to-day life and beyond. And I just want to throw one idea up here on the screen to leave us with as we depart from this spot here. The essence of following Jesus lies not 
in the highs or hindrances of life. And we all know there are highs and there are hindrances of all sorts of varieties. But embracing hope, hope, not flimsy hope, by the way, not flimsy hope, hope in what God has already done and continues to do and striving for holiness. The essence of following Jesus lies not in the highs or hindrances of life, but embracing hope and striving for holiness. See, Peter deals with the what gives question that we all, if we're honest, have all the time. I have it even in my own prayer life to this day. Because I oftentimes think, why is this not turning out this way? And why is this not working out this way? And, and yet, I come back to the reality that I face in Scripture with the fact that we're not called just for the highs and hindrances of life but to embrace hope and to strive for holiness, to be who God calls us to be. That is the good life. And the moment we embrace that, I'm not going to act like we won't ever ask what gives, but we might start to ask it just a little bit less because we'll actually know our purpose. And so I want to end this time by inviting us to take communion together. Hopefully, you grabbed a communion packet on the way in. And <clears throat> one of the things, you know, Peter, in, in, in 1 Peter 1, and you should read the whole chapter because he, he talks about the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But, you know, when we think about the fact that Jesus came to die on the cross for us, we often don't think about the connection of the Son being obedient to the Father. This call to be holy as God is holy is one that the Son lived out to perfection. That's why he was a good sacrifice and the only good one. Because at every step, every turn, even down to picking Peter as his disciple, Jesus prayed to the Father and listened to the Spirit before he made the pick. But he also is obedient all the way to the cross. And when we take communion, we not only remember Jesus' obedience to the cross, but we remember our highest example of what obedience to God, the Father, is. And ultimately, it's not about being somebody. It's about being his. And so right now, I want to give us a moment to reflect on that reality And after we take a moment to reflect, we will take communion together as one church family.
I invite each of you to take the bread from this cup and eat. This is his body which is given for us. And in like manner, I invite you to take and drink from this cup. This is his blood which is poured out for us. I invite you to please stand and pray with me. Dear Lord God, we thank you that we can come together and in obedience to your Son do this act of remembrance as we remember his obedience to you, his love for us, your love for us. We thank you that he not only gave his life for us, but that he wasn't left to dead, but that you raised him on the third day. And that you poured out your spirit on us so that we not only could answer the call to be disciples, to be obedient to you, but you gave us the means necessary to do so. And I pray, God, that as we live and strive to be obedient in the, the small details of life to the grand ones, I pray that you will help us to uh, always cling to your word, to always be cognizant of Jesus as our example, to always lean on your spirit as our power and our encouragement. And I pray, God, that in our obedience, that we will be light and salt to the world around us and that we will uh, be ever mindful of the good life that you called us to. Maybe not one that always affords us everything the way that we would like it to go, but one that is good because you called it so. We thank you for loving us the way that you do. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.